Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions, I think, on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. It was the dog that didn't bark, at least not yet, as natural gas prices, a Chinese property collapse, and a U.S. debt default all reared their ugly heads and then went back to sleep. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. Despite those disappointing jobs numbers, a volatile week in equities showed a modest gain for the week overall, with the S&P 500 up a bit under 1% and the Dow up a bit more than 1%. But there was more action with the 10-year Treasury, as yields went up for the seventh straight week, ending up over 1.6%. To take us through the week and the longer-term prospects for investors, welcome now Stephen Ratner. He's chairman and CEO of Willett Advisors, which invests the personal and philanthropic assets of Michael Bloomberg. He's the founder and majority owner of our parent company. And Joanne and Feeney, partner in Advisors Capital Management. Joanne, let me start with you. As I said, there were a lot of little spooks this week. We were a little nervous about things. Are there real risks out there that just happen to go away for the time being, or did we overreact? You know, David, it's as if investors just woke up and realized that the stock market is a risky place. You know, you, you see COVID having surged for a while. You see a slowdown in economic growth because of all the shortages we're having. You know, people are now paying more attention to inflation and recognizing that interest rates will eventually have to move higher. And, you know, that, that has created a bit of volatility. It's volatility that, you know, if we think back, is actually pretty normal. Uh, and so, you know, yes, investors got a little bit nervous. We saw some volatility. We've seen, you know, growth, though, continuing to outperform as investors run to some of the uh, bigger cap stocks that appear to have a longer runway of secular growth ahead of them. So, Steve, what about you? You're a longer-term investor. As you sort through this, which are the, the false negatives and which are the ones that you're really worried about in the longer term? 
Let me start with the ones that I worry about. The thing I worry most about is uh, inflation transmitting itself into higher interest rates, interest, higher interest rates being the enemy of the stock market and of investing in general. And that, to me, is the singular biggest risk. There are plenty of other risks, but I do think for the foreseeable future, we're on a positive growth, growth trajectory. There's still an enormous amount of, uh, ex, call it, you can call it excess or surplus or whatever you want to call it, money rattling around in the economy, uh, the government transfers money that people didn't spend last year during the lockdown and so forth. And so I don't think there's any growth issue, but I do think there's a serious inflation interest rate risk out there. So, Joanne, let's pick up on that specifically. I talked to Steven Mnuchin, the former Treasury Secretary this week, and he said he thinks the 10 years is going to 3.5 percent, in part because he agrees with Steve. He's really concerned about inflation. Is the stock market ready for 3.5 percent on the 10-year yield? Well, we've already seen some pullbacks in some of those higher multiple stocks because investors are finally realizing that market interest rates right here are too low. Now, the Fed has made it clear they're going to begin to taper their purchases and they're going to hold away from raising short-term rates. But as they taper, the long-term rates are, start, are going to start to rise. And we should expect that to filter into higher multiple stocks. Those are the stocks that are going to see the biggest declines in their multiples. And that's why we advise our clients to make sure if you're going to own expensive stocks like that, make sure they have very good growth profiles, you know, which a lot of them do. But yeah, it's a risk. I think it's an asymmetric risk across the stock market because not all stocks trade at multiples that are vulnerable to rising interest rates, but some of them really are. And so investors really need to stay away from owning concentrated positions and all those stocks that did so well during the heart of the COVID crisis. So, so Steve, uh, the consensus seemed to be, in response to those very disappointing jobs numbers, that in fact it wasn't going to deter the Fed, which seems to be on track to start tapering perhaps November, the next meeting they have. At the same time, if the inflation really is worse than what the Fed is understanding, is there a danger they'll have to really react much more violently when it comes? Well, first, I think it's I, I think it's risky to try to read too much into any month of jobs numbers. Uh, this month had a bunch of abnormalities in it relating to uh, people, teachers and uh, school employees going back to work in September and so on and so forth. Uh, the labor force participation number was very disappointing that people are actually still dropping out of the labor force, not coming back into the labor force. So all of that obviously does push you onto the slower side <coughs> of the economy. But on the other side, um, I do think I don't think it's a question of when the Fed decides to taper. I think it's a question of when the bond market decides that inflation is now the bigger concern rather than slower growth. And the Fed is going to end up perhaps in a reactive position rather than in a leading position on that issue. Joanne, if that is a risk, uh, taking into account all the other risks as well, what specific stocks do you do you like at this point? Well, there are, there are several to choose from depending on what you're trying to accomplish. We try to add a few different elements secular growth stocks that can hold up against those inflation increases and interest rate increases. Steve, if I understood you, you were saying at the beginning, you're not so worried about the growth pattern as you are about possible inflation. But talk to me about China. Am I overly focused on Evergrande and the Chinese property market? Because I've seen some remarkable numbers about how much of Chinese growth is dependent upon that property market and therefore how much of global growth is because we've depended so much on China over recent years. Well, you're certainly right to worry about Evergrande. The problem with China in general, Evergrande certainly being an example of it, is it, there's so much opacity in China that it's really hard to know what the facts are, what we should even be worrying about. I think the Chinese, I, look, I think everybody on the planet is aware of the Evergrande problem. I think the Chinese are certainly aware of it. I think they're trying to manage their way through it. I would be cautiously optimistic that they will be able to manage their way through it. They have a lot of tools at their disposal. They don't have to deal with the Congress and so on and so forth. 
but but it is certainly it is certainly a risk. But let me mention just one other risk quickly, uh, which I meant to mention before, which is the risk to corporate profit margins. So I agree that, as, or as I said, growth is definitely happening out there. But the question is really whether companies are going to continue to be able to pass along the increasing costs of their raw materials and their other and their other supplies. And that is an issue for corporate profits, and then obviously for the stock market after that. A reassuring note to finish on. Thank you so much to Joanne Feeney of Advisors Capital Management. Thank you so much to Steve Ratner of Willett Advisors. Coming up, the investment opportunities in fintech and the need for crypto regulation. From a new player in the space, former Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Fintech. Everybody's talking about it, even if we're not always sure what it is we're talking about. For some, it's all about cryptocurrencies with all the promise and all the uncertainty. Here's Don Fitzpatrick, Soros Fund Management CEO. There's 200 million, million users around the world. Um, so I think this has gone mainstream. For some, like Citadel CEO Ken Griffin, all that uncertainty keeps them from even touching crypto. We don't trade crypto because of the regulatory uncertainty. For others, it's not about cryptocurrency as such, but about a better way to transfer money and settle accounts. Here's Bank of America's Brian Moynihan and Aperture Investor's Peter Krauss. One half of the money moved by consumers today at Bank of America today is moved digitally. One half. The more interesting aspect of cryptocurrency is not the fact that it is a speculative value, but that it's a mechanism by which you can actually trade, settle, and effectively record transactions immediately or instantaneously. That's the much more valuable part of crypto. And some see the move to digital currencies as a way to democratize all of finance, removing some of the costs and frictions that keep much of the world's population out of the system. There are many frictions in international uh, finance and domestic finance. Many people don't have easy access to digital payments. You know, in the U.S., you need a debit or credit card or a bank account to have access to digital payments. International payments are still beset by lots of impediments. They're expensive. They are uh, very time consuming. It's very difficult to track payments. So there is a real need for better digital payments. That was Cornell professor Ishwar Prasad. 
But however you regard the move to digital of our financial systems, the one thing that's for certain is that it is coming. And that as it comes, we will see regulation shape its future. Something SEC Chair Gary Gensler, Investor Ken Griffin, and Senator Elizabeth Warren all agree is needed. Many of these tokens do meet the tests of uh, being an investment contract or a note or some other form of, of security that we bring them within the investor protection uh, remit of the SEC. Chairperson Gensler is spot on on the need to have thoughtful regulation around cryptocurrency. If people are going to be out there trading in it, there needs to be a cop on the beat. Whatever we mean by fintech, former Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin means to invest in it through his new $2.5 billion fund called Liberty Strategic Capital. And for the former secretary, it all begins with payment systems. Well, we really like the payment space. We think that's a gigantic opportunity, particularly for real-time cross-border currencies. I think the underlying technology of blockchain and using stable coins is something that's very interesting. But let me just comment because I, I saw a Bloomberg article on one of the big stable coins. In, in my view, you know, one, some of these stable coins should most likely be regulated. And two, if they're backed by dollars, they should be freely transferable, and we should make sure that they're really backed by dollars so that dollars are held by a custodian bank and that they're secure. Yeah, let's go exactly there. I'm glad you raised that because there was a piece on Bloomberg about Tether specifically saying that right now they have 69 billion Tethers outstanding and 48 billion of them were issued this year. Theoretically, that means they have $69 billion of more or less U.S. cash somewhere. Uh, how assured are we that they actually have that money? Well, I, I don't know much about Tether other than what I wrote about, and, and, and I thought the piece was actually quite interesting. But again, they shouldn't be like casino chips. They should be, in my opinion, if you're going to issue a stable coin, the actual money should go be held in a regulated bank, uh, in, in a trust account. And the people who hold the stable coins should be able to exchange those for real dollars at any time. So the stable coins should be invested in U.S. treasuries or things that look like U.S. treasuries, money markets of highly liquid backed investments. Stephen, it's not your job anymore. It was your job. Now it's Janet Yellen's job to figure out how you should best regulate that. She's had some meetings, as you know, to try to figure out regulation of things like stable coins. From your point of view, is that something that should be the Fed's responsibility? Is that the SEC? Where does that responsibility lie? Well, the Secretary of Treasury oversees a committee of all the different regulators, and that's the right place. So these issues cross different regulators. Some of them are Treasury regulations through FinCEN. Some of them are the OCC for banks. Some of them are the Fed and some of them are the SEC. And in general, um, you know, I'm fine if people want to trade Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, but I think there should be full transparency. These shouldn't be the equivalent of a Swiss numbered bank account. So if you're going to trade in these, they should be fully regulatory compliant, fully BSA compliant. And one of our big issues is to focus on cybersecurity. And again, one of the problems with ransomware is right now, it's way too easy to pay a $25 million ransom payment in, in Bitcoin. You know, you can't wire $25 million to people who you don't know. You can't deliver cash. 
uh, I believe the regulation should be same on these other cryptocurrencies. So as you look to make investments with your fund in this area, how vulnerable are your investments to sort of regulatory changes? I mean, is that a risk, an opportunity, a little bit of both? Well, as I, as I like to say, I've been regulated when I ran a OCC bank and I've been a regulator. So I understand both sides. We actually like investing in companies in regulated entities because we think the the legal and political risk is a lot less. And we think there's safety in, in a regulated institution, particularly whether a U.S. institution, whether it's a regulated by the OCC or regulated by FinCEN or, or regulated by the SEC. So I, as an investor, would be very careful investing in unregulated entities. There are clearly places where it makes sense to do that. But one has to be aware of the regulatory risk. Mr. Secretary, do you have a sense of the possibility of contagion? Let me be specific. Let's go back to Tether for a moment. There's a suggestion that perhaps if Tether collapsed, I'm not saying it will, but if it did, it could affect other cryptocurrencies. Is there a danger of contagion across cryptocurrencies? Well, let me just say I'm, I'm less focused on the contagion. I'm more focused on there are people who are buying that thinking they're buying the equivalent of U.S. dollars. So when you say you're buying into a stable coin backed by U.S. dollars, there should really be U.S. dollars there. So wh whether it's uh, an issue that drifts into other things or whether it's just in investors can't get their money back, I think that's a big problem and that's a regulatory concern. That was former U.S. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin. Coming up, a look inside the future of electric vehicles with the CEO of General Motors. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. General Motors held its Investors Day in Detroit this week with a series of announcements, including the debut of its much-anticipated electric Silverado pickup. We talked with GM CEO and Chair Mary Barra about GM's position in the race to an electric vehicle future. With the scale that General Motors has, as we continue to leverage Ultium, we get the scale, uh, we keep uh, leveraging the, the science to get the cost of the battery cells down. Yes, we, we have a plan, is, and that's why we're very confident that as we move forward through the end of the decade, we're going to see margin growth. Mary, I don't want to skip over the Silverado E. You mentioned it there in brief. Everybody's been waiting for this. Now we've seen some pictures of it. I know you're going to have an, a formal unveiling, I think, at CES coming up at the beginning of next year. Why a uh, glass roof? Well, I, I think, um, one, because we can. Um, and I think when you see the entire Silverado E, you're going to see what uh, doing a truck off an all-electric uh, platform, not trying to retrofit off of an existing platform, opens up all new design capability, functionality. I'm so excited because I think the Silverado E uh, will be a, a very um, strong-performing truck, but it's going to bring new buyers into the truck market, into General Motors' truck portfolio. Give us a sense of what you need, General Motors needs from the government, and particularly talk about charging stations, because the budget proposal that's being kicked around at Capitol Hill includes some serious money for charging stations. Do you need that in order for General Motors to be a true leader in electric vehicles? Well, we're investing in infrastructure, but we do think that the federal government is going to play a very important part, because think about it, David. We need to make sure that uh, someone who only owns one vehicle, who may live somewhere where they don't have designated parking, to have access to reliable charging. 
charging, because that's what is going to enable them to buy an electric vehicle. So we think it's a partnership between business and uh, the government to make sure we provide that infrastructure across the country. And uh, in addition to that, we want to make sure that we see the revisions to the EV tax credit that currently right now, um, you know, penalizes first movers in the way it was originally constructed. So you do need some help, again, on the affordability front from the government in terms of tax credits. Well, we think that's just going to accelerate EV adoption, and uh, we think that's a very important part of uh, accomplishing uh, the president's goals for from a climate change perspective, and that will uh, expedite uh, the adoption of EVs. And again, when we have a full portfolio with um, many different entries at different price points, uh, that's why we're well positioned. Uh, Mary, one of the things we've talked about before is we think of General Motors as a vehicle company, a car company, if you will. But you conceive of it somewhat differently. It's a platform company. And some of your announcements go to some of the software that can be put onto this platform. Talk to us particularly about, for example, Ultra Cruise. Sure. Well, you know, if I, if I start with looking at uh, what our Ultium platform gives us this platform to do, not only a full range of electric vehicles, but also into other markets, other transportation type vehicles. On top of that, then, we have the vehicle intelligent platform that really allows for over-the-air updates to almost any, um, you know, part of the vehicle. Now we're launching Ultify, which gives us uh, really a platform that we can offer services, subscriptions, like Super Cruise. You know, that it's not just you buy it in the vehicle, but it, it can be a, one of those things that you, you use it on demand with a subscription. So we're very excited about the, the business that we're unlocking. We really feel General Motors has moved from being an automaker to really a platform innovator. And the vehicle itself has become um, a software-defined vehicle that it really is going to unlock a lot of revenue that's at different margins and really serves the customer. You said at different margins. Give us a sense Put aside revenue and talk about profit contribution. At what point will those services contribute as much as the vehicles will to the profits of General Motors? Well, I think if you look at, you know, our internal combustion business, our EV business, um, the services are, are, are going to play a very material role. But then on top of that, there's also crews. And we think there's tremendous growth potential as we commercialize crews, uh, in addition to OnStar Insurance, Bright Drop, and our GM Defense operations. So that's why there's so much growth and there's a different margin profile for each of those businesses that I think is going to lead to improved profitability. You mentioned Bright Drop. I want to focus on that for a moment because one of the things that I think I see with General Motors is a move as well from B to C, business to consumer, to B to B business. You have the Bright Drop situation and the arrangement with FedEx. Take us through that where you are on it. Well, again, as, as we look at Bright Drop, what to me is so important about Bright Drop, it's not simply taking an internal combustion uh, like commercial vehicle and making it electric. It's really creating an ecosystem and allowing our customers to be more efficient. You know, for example, in some of the piloting work we've done with FedEx, you know, really working with their uh, their, their truck. Uh, their drivers and then how they do deliveries, we're able with our e-pallet system to drive more efficiency so they can actually deliver more packages in the same amount of time. And then providing a whole uh, software system to manage all aspects of, of managing the fleet. It's, so it's really an ecosystem. It's a total solution for these customers. And we've been working with them and that's what they say they want. We're going to deliver. That's GM CEO Mary Barra. Coming up, we wrap up the week as we always do with contributor Larry Summers of Harvard. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. 
While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high-yield-account. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We're going to conclude our week as we always do with our special contributor here on Wall Street Week. He is Larry Summers of Harvard. So, Larry, thank you so much for being back with us. Let's start with the jobs numbers. Came out on Friday this week. Disappointing by quite a margin, I must say, although some people thought underlying it, the numbers weren't as bad as maybe they appeared. David, look, I think this fit the story that we've been telling on this show almost exactly. We got a lot of demand. We don't have so much supply. That's why the unemployment rate came down more than people expected. That's why the wage growth was much higher than uh, people expected. We don't have a soft economy in terms of demand. We have more of a more damage to people's willingness to work than people expected a few months ago. The problem is that this points in favor of uh, the inflationary di- diagnosis. Look, average hourly earnings this week, this month, rose at a seven and a half percent annual rate. That's not consistent with any reasonable theory of inflation. And with the unemployment rate lower and falling, it may even get the situation, may even get worse. So I think we're in a very uh, difficult uh, situation. Here's one way to think about it. We've got interest rates way below their neutral level. The Fed thinks the neutral level of interest rates like two and a quarter percent. They've got interest rates close to a half percent. They've got interest rates close to zero. And I think given the vast structural changes underway after COVID, we've probably got unemployment below the natural or neutral rate of unemployment. And that's just not a combination that adds up to anything other than taking a big risk on uh, the inflation side. So I'm pretty concerned about where we are. So I want to turn to a different subject, something you wrote on in the Washington Post at the end of the week. And it's this proposal, actually, as part of the Biden package, economic package, that the banks report to the IRS on the overall inflows and outflows, as I understand it, of deposits being held, basically as a way to get at some income that otherwise doesn't show up, for example, on your W-2 or your 1099. You wrote, and you were pretty forceful about it, I must say, in the Washington Post. Explain your point of view on this. David, I think this is really an easy one. Right now, if you or I have an account in a bank, the bank reports on that account by reporting interest. 
So we're already sharing that information with the government and the IRS is already learning about our bank account. The proposal that's made is that in addition to reporting on the interest they pay, they report on the inflow when the money comes in. And the reason for that report is that we've got an epidemic of tax non-payment in this country. On income that you get in a wage or a salary on a W-2, compliance is above 99%. On income where you don't have information reporting by businesses, it's below 50-50. And in total, the tax gap is going to cost us $7 trillion over the next 10 years. So the proposal is that when banks get substantial deposits, they have to report them. There's plenty of room for argument about exempting the little guy. There's plenty of room for argument about how if it's a paycheck, it's already being reported on, so you shouldn't have to report it again. Those are details that can be worked out. But when the banking industry is saying that this is some kind of major invasion of people's privacy, this is something that's impossible to do. I mean, these are people who are like incredibly proud of the fact that they're letting you buy a fraction of a stock on your cell phone in two and a half seconds. The idea that it's some kind of big burden to report a basic inflow to the IRS on an account where you already report is absurd. So, so Larry, speculate with me. You know these banks terribly well. What's driving them? If it's not the administrative burden, you sort of dismiss that. If it's not the privacy concerns, why are they protesting so strongly? Some of it is probably that they want to maintain good relations with their customers who aren't always honest about the tax law and don't want to be uh, report, reported on. You know, when you see a business do an unreasonable thing, it's often because they're in service of uh, their customers. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that they're right. people who just don't like taxes and don't like anything about, uh, ta about uh, taxes. Look, I think in fairness, um, the IRS has had some privacy problems. Some of these yep. revelations that have been so shocking have also been wrong. And I think that contributes uh, to uh, this ethos. But I sure think that the thing everybody ought to be able to agree on, Democratic and Republican, whatever exactly you think, $7 trillion over the next decade in taxes that are legally owed, legally owed under the tra tax law legislated by Donald Trump and not paid, that's got to be a scandal that calls for us to do much more than we're doing. Yeah. And information reporting is one part of that, right. and strengthening the IRS is another. Uh, Larry, yep. one of the big developments potentially this week had to do with that global minimum corporate tax. Ireland surprised, at least me, by saying, yes, we'll go along with it. And now we know, in fact, it will go forward. Tell us about the significance of that, potentially. David, I think this is the most important global economic agreement of the 21st century so far. It's important in reality because it's going to fortify tax collections from corporations for companies all over the world. It's 
important in principle because instead of countries running a race to the bottom with respect to taxing business income, they're now going to level up in a way that's going to be fairer and permit tax reductions on working people all over the world. And it's important in showing that global economic diplomacy can be something that's not just about the people who are in Davos, but about working people uh, everywhere. Joe Biden's talked about a middle-class-based foreign policy. This is a huge triumph uh, for that. It's a great credit to the president who created the environment, to Secretary Yellen, who drove uh, the agreement, and to a large number of officials who've been working in this area for uh, many, many years. This is really a big uh, deal for international economic diplomacy. Okay, Larry Summers Harvard, thank you so very much for being back with us. Larry, of course, is our special contributor here at Wall Street Week. Finally, one more thought. Call it the Mount Rushmore of tax havens. Taxes, none of us wants to pay them, but what's even worse is when you think you're paying yours and the other guy isn't, which is why it's red meat every time Democratic lawmakers point it out to constituents when they want to close loopholes. From Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. There are just too many people that have been using um, things that are maybe well meant in the tax code or many times not well meant. Um, and they use it to make a lot of money at the expense of other people. It's just not fair. To Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. Jeff Bezos is a billionaire grifter. And so are the rest of these hugely wealthy people who pay next to nothing in taxes. And all the way up to President Biden himself. I'm not anti-corporate, but it's about time they start paying their fair share. That wealthy people want to avoid paying taxes is nothing new, let's be honest. Here's President Obama back in 2009 pledging to close offshore tax loopholes. For years, we've talked about stopping Americans from illegally hiding their money overseas and getting tough with the financial institutions that let them get away with it. Around the same time, U.S. prosecutors went after Swiss banks because they claimed bank secrecy laws were protecting some of their clients from paying the taxes they owed. UBS will hand over the names of American account holders suspected of tax evasion. Now other Swiss and European banks may be part of the government's crackdown on this practice. But now news comes of a new tax haven. Not the Cayman Islands, not the Channel Islands, not an island at all. No, it's good old South Dakota, where the Washington Post reports that trust companies in the state have more than quadrupled their assets in the last 10 years, up to $360 billion. And a good part of that money comes from overseas. How are they doing it? The good old-fashioned way. They are providing state laws protecting assets from creditors and from taxing authorities. This is all based on millions of documents obtained by The Post and the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And although the money deposited itself may not have come from any illegal activity, it did come from some pretty controversial figures, like the Colombian textile czar caught laundering international drug money, or a wealthy Brazilian alleged to have colluded to underpay local farmers, or the family of the former head of a sugar company in the Dominican Republic accused of exploiting workers there. So before we get too high and mighty about how other countries are letting wealthy taxpayers get out of paying their taxes, maybe we should look closer to home, like in the shadow of Mount Rushmore. 
That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.